remember the old uh, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers song? There's a line that said, uh, the waiting is the hardest part. And we, I think we find that to be true a lot in life, waiting, because we don't know what's going to happen next. And anticipation of something can, can really do you in. Uh, either we, we, in anticipation or expectation or waiting, we, we overblow something or we completely underdo it, right? What, what reality is. And anticipation is, well, sometimes anticipation is the whole point. Like, you ever ridden the, the, the Tower of Doom at Elitch's? You know that ride? Like 13 stories tall or whatever. And you, you get in the little, the little cart. It goes up this tower, right? And you sit in this bench and you're strapped in. And, and the thing goes up really fast. And then there's this pause. And then if you've ridden it enough, you, you'll hear this click. And this little click means you're about to drop. Click. And the ride itself is like 1.3 seconds. You drop this, you know, 100 feet or whatever it is. Just like that. And it's over. But the anticipation is the ride. If you really think about it, it's this, this waiting, when is it going to happen? Now, there was this time several years ago when, when my family and I, we all rode it, all four of us, uh, my wife, Laura, and then my son, Ryan, and Jenna. I think they were probably like middle school, early high school. We're riding the, the Tower of Doom ride, right? And so we're at Elitch's. as we get down, we get strapped in and, and get in there and zip up, we go to the top. And, and we wait and we hear the click. Click. Nothing. And, and then we kind of hear the motor again. We're stuck on the top of the Tower of Doom. Now, now, if you've ridden that, it's a fascinating thing because you're sitting there and there's nothing in front of you. You're right. You're, there are like three of these benches uh, around this thing, and you're just stuck, and there's nothing in front of it. You're just harnessed in. There's, there's nothing. There's no wall. You're just there. And in that moment of anticipation, all of our various personalities in our family came out. My, my daughter, Jenna, is like, Daddy, what's going to happen? And my son's going, be quiet, Jenna, be quiet, Jenna, shut up. And my wife's going, well, surely they're going to communicate to us what's going on, right? And they'll let us know what's happening and what we can expect, and they'll lower us down. And I'm going, wow, look at those new statues by the convention center. Surely they're going to tell us. That was my wife's thing. Surely they're going to tell us and communicate us, and they'll, they'll lower us down. And, and deep inside, I'm going, there's no way they're lowering us down. We're just going to drop out of nowhere. I just can tell. So, so what seemed like an eternity was probably like six minutes. And by this time, we're there, and people have gathered on the ground looking up. <laughs> Those people are stuck on the Tower of Doom. And all of a sudden, boom! We can't, they just drop it. It's like, well, what do you expect them to do? And, well, they'll probably make it right somehow. And, and really it was, hey, sorry about that. Here's a ticket so you can go first in line on some other ride. Right? That's it. The, the anticipation is the ride. And, and, and then we didn't know what to anticipate. And, and all of our guesses were, were basically, we'll see what happens. And it, it can be the hardest part of anything we deal with in life. Well, we've been going through the book of Mark, and, and we're really coming down to the very end. We're in the, the final hours of Jesus' life on this earth. And we're in this section where if we, if we were here last week, remember we had the, the passage about, uh, it was the Lord's Supper. It was the, the last supper with the disciples. And, and during this time changed what, what they could expect, what they understood about, at that time, Passover. And he, he changed it and make it, it made it about himself. Right? This is my body. It, it's for you. This is my blood shed for you. And then there was a situation where he started out that gathering and said, one of you will betray me. One of the 12, one of the closest ones to me is going to betray me. And then they got up to leave and they were walking out and he looked at them and said, basically all of you are going to deny me. All of you are going to fall away. And they didn't believe it. And, and Peter in so many words says, Not, never, I, I would rather die. I would die with you than, than deny you. And 
Jesus said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And then it said all the others said the same thing. All, all the disciples were there basically said, we will go to the death for you. I have to admit, when we were, when we were singing some songs this morning, the, the last one in particular, I was, get, I was getting a little bit weepy. And that's not, I'm mean, an emotional guy, but I wasn't expecting that. Because sometimes you, you sit here and you're in this moment. The reason I, I think I was in that moment is because the songs we sing, the worship songs we sing every week, are, are all based on the fact that we know the whole story. We know all of Scripture. We, we know that, that, that there's this time in the book of Mark now where we're leading up to the cross, and it's this devastating time. But, but we know the whole story. We know that Jesus rises again. We know that forgiveness is possible and that eternity is possible, and God's grace and mercy overcomes everything. We know that, and we sing about it, and we celebrate it. But the passage for this week's message doesn't know any of that yet. And so I was living in that place this week, this place of, of denial and, and betrayal and anguish and, and mock justice and ridicule. I was living in that place in this passage, and, and it kind of weighs you. Because when you're, when you're living in that kind of place and you're wrestling with those Scripture passages, it, it it needs to become personal. And so you start asking yourself questions in the middle of this, like, like, like why did all these Sanhedrin, these religious leaders, they, they all came to the same place. They, they all agreed about something that was wrong. How did that happen? And then I asked myself, well, would I, if I was there, would I have just gone along with that? Would I have agreed the same way? Of not seeing who, who Jesus really is, of, of this God that, that I've spent my life studying, that's what the Sanhedrin were, these were the, the heads of the religious orders and affairs, and they spent their life trying to understand God, and here was God right in their midst, and they didn't see it, and how many times have I not seen that? Or, or you think about Peter, and he's recorded in scripture as, as completely missing it. He, he, he goes down in history, he's written, and the only reason we know what happened to Peter and how it played out when he denied Jesus is, is because he kept that story alive. It's in all four of the Gospels about Peter's denial. He kept that story alive. And the founding documents of our faith points to Peter and says he messed up. Can you imagine being in that place? What if I did something to really mess up this church during my interim time here? So much so that you wrote it into the bylaws. Remember Dale. I mean, that'd be horrible. But that, that's what happened with Peter. He, he's written down. He, he kept that story alive. And so spending this, this week in this place of trying to wrestle through all these things, and it's a, it's a big passage we're looking at today. And we're looking at this whole big passage because we really need to. We need to see this whole big picture. And, and so let me, let me read it for you. We're going to kind of cut it into uh, two sections. Starting in Mark 14, starting in verse 32, it says, They went to a place called Gethsemane. So this is right after the Last Supper. Right after he said, One of you will betray me. One who eats with me. One who knows me well. One who's followed me closely. Right? And he said, you're all going to fall away. It says, they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. He said to them, stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that, if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible. Are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and the same thing. 
When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They, they did not know what to say to him. Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and leading him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then, then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. And everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. I'm going to stop right there. And we need to understand and, and, and get into the, the right frame of mind for this passage. You see, I think, unfortunately, in our, in our Christian tradition, because we fully believe that God is fully human and fully divine, I think we tend to default to the divine, divine side. And so we look at a story like this and say, this is, this is amazing. In the midst of this really difficult thing, he, he stood strong, right? He, he did this, and we, we miss the passage of, uh, of the humanity that's being wrecked here. And Mark goes to great lengths to try to describe that for us, more than any of the other gospel writers. He's, he's stressing for us Jesus' humanity and the anguish. He's been going through this time. He's basically told the disciples several times what's going to happen to him. I'm, I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm handed over to the religious leaders. I'll be handed over to the authorities, and they will kill me. And then I'll rise again. He's told them this several times. And it's easy for us to get and almost read this poetically because we know the rest of the story. We read it almost, and they walked with him and began to be deeply distressed and troubled. And we can read that in this very detached way. But Mark, in his Greek language here, says this was absolute anguish. He says to his disciples, I don't know what I'm going to do. I am in a place of anguish, and I am so troubled deep in my soul. It says he fell down and prayed. I feel like I'm going to die. This was, a, this was a tough, anguishing place that Jesus was in. And, and we can't discount it. We can't toss it over and say, well, he handled it because he's God. No, Mark wants us to understand the depth of the pain and the anguish he was going through. Even though he had basically set the table for what was going to happen, he, he's now going through it. The anticipation of what's going to happen next is ripping him apart. And Mark wants us to know that. Why? Because we can identify with that. What goes on in life that's hard for us to handle? And, and, and Jesus going through more than we could ever even imagine. He, he identifies with our pain and our struggle. And, and so he goes on and he, he interacts. He wants to pray and then he falls on his face, which was not a normal way to pray. Normally be standing and raising hands to heaven. This was on your face because it was in anguish. And he cried out in this intimate way, Father, Abba, anything is possible with you. I don't want to go through this. If, if you can't take this cup from me, this, this cup of suffering, this, this thing that I'm here, take this away from me, yet 
It's not about what I want. It's so many stories. One is the Gethsemane of Jesus. In this moment of intimacy with his father. Where we can learn something from Jesus. And that he, we need to be resolved to do the will of God no matter what. He was willing to do it. He, he addressed him intimately. He said, I don't want to go through this. If there's any other way, can we do that instead? Yet it's not what I want. It's what you want. And he resolved to to follow and obey the will of God no matter what. And the way he was in intimacy, because of this prayer, because of his ability to connect with with the Father, he was able to go through what he needed to go through. And it's it's a sobering place. Now on the flip side, we have the the Gethsemane of the disciples. And they had headed out, and and just after Jesus had had basically said they're all going to fall away, he then, he said, heads out farther, and he's going to pray, and he asked three of them, Peter, James, and John, to come farther. And and he basically said, stay here and watch. Pray. And that sounds a lot like a passage we looked at a few weeks ago, what's usually called the Olivet Discourse, where he was talking to four of his close disciples and telling them reality of what was about to happen. And, And said, I'm going to be led away, and, and, and at some point, you're going to be put on trial. You're going to be hated because people hate me. And he talked about what was going to happen and how God would give them the words to say, and, and no matter what happened to them, they needed to stand strong. And in that whole passage, 17 times he gives an imperative of watch, pray, stay alert, because you never know what's going to happen next. So, so be alert, be on your guard. He, he kept saying that, right? And so here we have this time, they're with him. These three have been with him in the the most intimate places. They they saw the transfiguration. They've they've seen the miracles. They've seen amazing things. He says, watch and pray. And he released to them and and told them what he was going through. I'm at the place of distress and anguish where I could die. Now watch. And they fell asleep. Three times. These people that just, just a little ways before said, we will die for you. We will never deny you. And they fell asleep. And Jesus comes back the first time and says, Simon, which you find that interesting because that was his kind of given name, but Jesus kind of renamed him Peter, meaning rock. He didn't call him that in that moment. Simon, why are you sleeping? Couldn't, couldn't you stay awake? Do you remember what I said? And so as, we're, whereas we learned that, that Jesus was resolved to do the will of God no matter what, and, and he, was, he was strengthened because of prayer and intimacy with God, we see the disciples sleeping. And Old Testament imagery, and, and really throughout all, all religious ideas, the idea of sleeping is the idea of faithlessness and powerlessness. And so really we get this figure of speech. I mean, they were probably actually sleeping, but really he's saying, you have no faith, you have no strength, you're not, you're not living the way I asked you to live. And, and in this context, we see that to sleep is to stop praying. To, to sleep in this context is to be ignorant of, of the trials that are right at hand. To sleep is to think that you can do it on your own. Because that's really what they said they could do, right? We'll die with you. We'll die for you. Never will we deny your name. We got this. But they fell asleep. And because they fell asleep, they they lost their opportunity to live out strongly and to live out faithfully. Let's move on to the story. Starting in verse 53, it says, this is is after... um, 
then Judas had come and, and betrayed Jesus, right? He was handed over. And the disciples just ran away, right? This all happened and they just scattered, just like Jesus said they would. They took Jesus to the high priest and, and all the chief priests and the elders and teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And there he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another not made with hands. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. I'm going to answer. What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. The blessed one. I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worse, struck him with their fists and said, Prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I, I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and, and went out into the entryway. And the servant said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately the rooster crowed the second time, and Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. Think about what we just saw in the garden. So these two Gethsemanes, Jesus had had girded himself, had steeled himself for what was to happen. There's this, there's this thing that tends to happen in, in a place of, of suffering or trial. Uh, the, the, the author M. Scott Peck in his book, The Road Less Traveled, says that this idea of suffering, not, not say about Jesus, but in any context, there's a place where you come to understand it and, and accept it. And, and in some ways then it no longer seems like suffering. You, you get to a place of resolve of facing it. And so we see this transition happen where, where Jesus falls on his face praying that, that God would take this away. He, he expresses to his disciple the anguish where he could die. But, but now he stands in front in silence and then boldly proclaims when they ask him, are you the one, are you the Messiah? He says, I am. There was, there was a switch from, from the anticipation to the reality. And now he is walking in it with the most courage and integrity imaginable. He, he steeled himself for that place. And, and Peter, our example here, fell so flat in his Gethsemane that, that now when he's on trial, and really we have two trials, the trial of Jesus, the trial of Peter, going on simultaneously. How does Jesus respond? How does Peter respond? They're completely different responses. Why? Because they, they approached them completely differently. Peter was not ready because he was asleep. He, he, he was not prayerful. 
He was not in relationship with the Father. His trial was a disaster. So Jesus is before the high priest in what we can only describe as a kangaroo court, right? They've been saying all along, we're looking for a way to kill him. We're going to arrest him. We're going to have him put to death. That, that, that was their desired outcome. So now they're going to do whatever it takes to make it happen. And they, and they came at night with, with the betrayer Judas. And now they take him to the, the home of the high priest. And this is probably one, two in the morning, right? In the middle of the night. This is not when good, legitimate legal things happen. This was under the cloak of darkness. This was in secrecy. This was trying to trap Jesus. We know what we want to do. We have a predetermined outcome. Now we just have to make sure we get the facts right. So that when we take him then to the actual legal authorities, they can put him to death. And so we're trying to contrive this, make it happen. And so false witnesses are rising up and telling stories about what they had seen or heard. But the Pentateuch law that they followed said that witnesses had to agree. And they didn't agree. And so they made up stories. Well, we heard him say he will destroy the temple, right? Made by hands and then, and then rebuild it without hands. And we know Jesus said something about the temple, but that wasn't exactly it. They were just trying to find a way. And the high priest stood before him again and says, aren't you going to answer? There's all these accusations. People are accusing you of things. You're going to answer them. And said so he was silent. And, and finally, the, the high priest had enough, right? He says, are you the Messiah? And if we think about the entire book of Mark, and the book starts out by saying this is the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the good news of Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. That's, that's how Mark identified him. But never before has Jesus outright point blank said, I am the Messiah. He's done things to point that way. He asked the disciples that way to say he's the king of the kingdom of God. But he never absolutely came right out. But now in this moment, he does. Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am and then he goes on to say something else. Added, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the images. One taken from Psalm 110, one from Daniel 7. This idea of the Son of Man and one who comes on the clouds. And he's saying, I am and you will see me. In a way that's beyond what you think a Messiah is. He's basically in this session saying, and, and I'm divine. And he's really saying, and all I am and everything I've said will come true and I will be vindicated because you will see it. If he hadn't already sealed his fate, he did it right then. Because then it says the high priest tore his robe, which was a statement of indignation. How dare you do that? He basically called him then a blasphemer. Right? He, he tore his thing and, and then they, they grabbed him, they seized him, and they beat him, and they blindfolded him, and they spit on him, and then they started playing this horrible game. Who hit you? Who hit you? Prophesy. This is a horrible place of injustice for a man who actually is God. And, and then if Mark were writing this in today's vernacular, he would say, meanwhile, down in the courtyard... This has been the trial that's been going on with Peter. And he wants us to know that these are going on at the same time. So while this is happening to Jesus, this is what's happening to Peter. And Peter had kind of followed from a distance, it said. Boy, that's another thing to ponder. During a week of living in these passages, Peter followed from a distance. And somehow came into the courtyard and, and he kept being recognized. You were one of them, right? He said, no, I don't know the man. Never seen him. No, surely you were one with him. No. 
In fact, one very interesting passage, the first time he's asked, he said he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about. And once again, if we think about the whole picture of the book of Mark, if we were to encapsulate the experience of the disciples, they never knew or understood who Jesus really was. And he says, again, I don't know, understand, know or understand what you're talking about. And, and finally, the third time, surely one of them, you were a Galilean, and says he began to call down curses. It's like, as God is my witness, I do not know this man. May God strike me dead if what I say is not true. He was truly being blasphemous on his trial. Jesus was called blasphemous and, and wasn't. Jesus lost his life because he stood up and he stated the truth. Peter escaped with his skin intact by lying his way out of it. As I said at the beginning, this is a tough passage because I've lived here this week. And what I've come to understand is as we look at this passage, this, this, this passage really isn't just about Peter. And just about the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, which was a, a council of 71 men that handled the religious affairs. And, and it says all the Sanhedrin were there. We don't know if all 71 were there, if we're just the chief priests gathered whoever he could in the middle of the night. But, but they were all there, and, they, and they, they agreed to do this despicable trial. And they had no standing in that culture to actually convict and, and do a death sentence. They had to hand them over to the actual government officials to carry that out. But this isn't really just about the Sanhedrin. It's not really about Peter. It's not really just about the disciples. This, this is a story about the human condition, about, about who we are in life. These people, all of them, the disciples, the, the religious leaders, these were the people, the people that were responsible for the death of Jesus across the board were, were people who devoted their life to knowing more about God. It wasn't the irreligious that killed Jesus. It was the religious. It wasn't, it wasn't the unlawful and the anarchists. It was the, the people of the law. They're the ones that killed Jesus. And this is a passage about the, the human condition, about how, how we don't steal ourselves well in life. How Jesus says, watch and pray, be alert, be on your guard, be ready. And, and we think we can handle it on our own. We think we can just go about our business and, and we don't truly anticipate what reality is and so we're not ready for it. We think we, we can do it on our own just like Peter did. I will never deny you. I will die for it. Yet he, he followed from a distance. And he wasn't ready for what came. Jesus steeled himself for reality and was able to walk through it with integrity. And, and walk through it all, knowing that everyone had fallen away. He was absolutely, and, and resounding in my ears, the statement of daily, you need to watch, you need to pray, you need to be ready. And how do you do that? It, it's by recognizing your absolute dependence on God. Thing as Jesus did, that, that anything is possible for God, yet not your will but mine. Can, can we, Peter had no prayer, and, and therefore he was weak. Jesus' trial revealed in him that his true self was he was, he was the Messiah. He, he, he is God. He, he, he is at the right hand of the Father. That, that revealed who he is and what was revealed in Peter's trial was his true self was that he was boastful and cowardly and faithless, faithless and weak on his own. 
We can't leave this passage just right here, though, because we do know the rest of the story. And I don't want us to stay. We need to keep one foot in this world. One foot in this world that says, look at these people that knew him so well, and they fell short, and they denied him, and even betrayed him. Yet we know the whole story, and we want to live in that world, in the goodness of God's grace. And so we need to remind ourselves of the rest of the story. And and there's this amazing passage that we'll cover in in a few weeks, which is the the conclusion of the book, which is when it says the women came to the tomb, right? And it was empty. And they they saw this man dressed in white sitting sitting there. And and this, this guy said to these women, go tell the disciples and Peter that I have gone ahead of them to Galilee, just like I said. In other words, we look at this passage, and, and, and this statement where at the, the end of what we just read where it says Peter broke down and wept, that's the last time we ever see Peter in the book of Mark. And when the disciples fled when Jesus was arrested, that, that's the last time we saw any of them in the book of Mark. But, but we have this huge and statement. Jesus isn't here. Go tell my disciples and Peter. Remind him that failure is not final. Remind him that he will be restored. Remind him that I will go ahead of him to Galilee where I will once again be the shepherd. Because now everything changes. I said before that the only reason we really know the story and the details of what happened with Peter as he was in that denial place is because Peter kept the story alive. No one else was there to record that. He kept it alive. He reminded people of how much he had failed. Why? Because it wasn't final. But God's grace and forgiveness was final. In fact, if you read the the, the letters of Peter, if you read the book of Acts and see how Peter engaged, those next times when he was asked throughout his life, after the Holy Spirit had come in power at Pentecost and everything changed, Whenever he had the opportunity to take a stand for Jesus again, he did. And you can just hear in his words something that would resound like, I know you've denied him. I know it because I did. And I did it in a way that I'm ashamed of. In the time of Jesus' great need, I fell asleep. In the time when Jesus was on trial, I denied knowing him. I called down curses. I was blasphemous. I did all that and Jesus gave me grace. Jesus gave me mercy. He said my failure was not final, but he is victorious. We have to hold on to that. And we need to understand that we are as capable of denying Jesus as those first disciples were. And that we do. But, but we don't dwell in that world. We, we keep one foot there to remind us. But we live in the world of God's grace and his forgiveness and his second chances and his great beginnings and the fact that failure is not final. The crucifixion was not final. The crucifixion was the beginning of something, not the end of something. And we marvel at that and we live in that and we rejoice because it's easy to find myself and live in this place. And once again, if we're not willing to live in that place of our desperate need for forgiveness, then we actually diminish the purpose of the opportunity to be with this group of Sanhedrin trying to agree on something about God. Would I have stood up and said, I don't agree? Or do we, we give in to that mentality and say, that's not what we thought God would be, therefore he's not true.
I'm not sure exactly how to end this sermon. Because in a lot of places, this isn't a conclusion, right? This is, what's next? What's next in our lives? What's next in the life of this church? We're not just where do we go from here, but who are we? How are we being changed? How will we handle things as they come? Will we be people who, who watch and pray, as Jesus called us to do? Who, who be on the alert to, to, to steal ourselves for living a life as Jesus did? Do, do we live that place knowing that things are going to come our way that we couldn't handle on our own? Or do we stand there and say, I can take whatever happens because it's really not that big a deal? which is probably what the disciples thought, right? They, they had seen Jesus. He was strong. He was powerful. He accomplished things. He, he turned the tables on those leaders, but all of a sudden he appeared kind of weak. And they didn't know what to do with that. And they gave in to despair. They gave in to persecution. They gave in. And whereas Jesus in his intimacy with the Father steeled himself for what's next. We need to be people like that. Like the people Peter became and the disciples became when the Holy Spirit came in power. That's my prayer for you. That's my prayer for me. That we would be those kind of people. That in our Garden of Gethsemane, we would learn to trust God and we would not fall asleep. And that at our trial, we would stand up and say, I know Jesus. Let me show you who he is my prayer for you, my prayer for me. And let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and